Uh, we're in a series called The Pursuit of Justice now, or <laughs> The Pursuit of Justice. Uh, Sam's got me still. Uh, called The Pursuit of God. And we started it off talking about prayer and, and what it meant to listen uh, to God. Um, God hears our prayers more than we think he does. Um, it's, it's we who need to hear him maybe uh, more than he needs to hear us. And we, we kind of began talking about hearing God and exploring prayer a bit. And what we want to do this morning is, is I want to work toward a theology of happiness and contentment. I want to work towards a theology of happiness and contentment. Um, and so we're just going to make haste here, and I'm going to try and talk fast because we want to cover a lot of ground. And, and to that end, you should have gotten a handout on the way in because I wanted to just leave you with something that would maybe fill in a little bit of the, uh, the background or that you can take it home and just reflect on some things. Because the first thing we need to do if we're working toward a theology of happiness and contentment, I think, is, is erase or deal with a misconception that we have in the church, which is that it's somehow morally... Uh, it's, it's morally wishy-washy or it's a little bit morally strange or a bit spiritually strange to talk about happiness or to say that we want to be happy. Now, I think we, we deal with that tension as Christians. We've heard the phrase in recent American history or culture so often, you know, hey, whatever makes you happy or do whatever makes you happy, that because of kind of how happiness gets used in society, we begin to go, you know, half the problem here is happiness, that, that everyone's trying to be happy and they give no regard to God or no regard to morality or ethics. And so we begin to kind of go, I don't know, happiness makes me really uncomfortable. And I think it, we have to kind of get behind that a little bit or backtrack a little bit so that we can have a full and deep conversation rather than just react to contemporary usage of the word happiness. And so I gave you a little bit of background, but I'm going to kind of hit a, a couple um, points real fast as, as uh, what I would call a brief history of happiness to, to just kind of put the word out there before we get into kind of the points of the message. And the first thing is this, happiness has been around for a long time. And when we go back to the beginning here and talk about how happiness was used, it was actually used in conjunction with ethics, so for Aristotle in, in the beginning of philosophy, if you really want to talk about the beginning of philosophy, most people talk about Socrates, who never wrote anything. Uh, he kind of went around and antagonized people and would get into discussions. And his pupil, Plato, who did write a lot and wrote a bunch of these dialogues, and that's how we know Socrates is through Plato's dialogues. And then Plato had a pupil named Aristotle, okay? And Aristotle was Plato's pupil, and in some sense, they're two different philosophical systems really um, present kind of the, the two options in Western thinking or Western thought, Western philosophy. And then Plato, or I'm sorry, uh, Aristotle had a disciple, a pupil, and his name was Alexander the Great. And so there's a, there's a different lesson here about the power of discipleship and, and training and education, but we won't go there. But you have Socrates and then Plato and then Aristotle, all relative in terms of um, being contemporaries, Athenian culture. And this is widely regarded as really when philosophy, the love of wisdom, that kind of discipline of thinking gets going. And right in that time, you get Aristotle writing um, ethics for the first time, really boiling down how are we going to reason through things ethically uh, and, and figure this out. And the way he did it is a system called um, eudaimonian ethics or ethical eudaimonism, 
And eudaimonia is the Greek word for happiness. It's a Greek word for happiness. And so you have the marriage of thought here that says happiness is a state of being that comes about as you flourish as a human. In other words, you're growing up into uh, what it means to be human. You're developing because humans, like machines or like things in nature, have, have a proper function. And so for Aristotle, as you live into that proper functioning and you grow up into it, you begin to flourish, you experience what's called the good life. And the good life is one um, where it's characterized by your happiness and the virtue and the ethics that flow from that. And you get really the marriage of these two ideas. Does that make sense? And so happiness is not regarded kind of in the beginning as being about an emotion or certainly not purely about an emotion. It's much deeper. It's about a way of being, a way of living. It's the state of your existence. And for a lot of the Greeks, they thought a truly happy life is one that you would only have in your later years as you matured. It's something you grow up into. And we all kind of know that picture of someone who's really developed and flourished and they're a little bit older and wiser and more mature and you say, now that's a person. And you look at their life and you envy it. Why? Because there's a degree of happiness or contentment or joy that exists with that person. And so for the ancient Greeks and then most of all Western thought, happiness was not synonymous with pleasure it was not synonymous with pleasure pleasure meant pleasure happiness meant happiness um, now in in modern thinking we kind of take happiness and pleasure to be synonymous whereas a better way of looking at it classically or up until the modern time is happiness and joy would have been better synonyms for one another with pleasure referring to something different do you understand that distinction? Okay. Now, it's an important distinction because it exists even in the framing of our, our Declaration of Independence in our forefathers in America. When Thomas Jefferson wrote the phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he was basically uh, translating and making a little bit more um, poetic what he had inherited from John Locke, who was the great uh, enlightenment kind of political thinker in England when John Locke always talked about life, liberty, and property. Life simply meant you cannot deprive me of my life. I, I, I have that as an inalienable or, or fundamental right. Um, liberty, which is my ability to move about the cabin freely, my, my freedom in some sense, my, my liberty, you don't have the right, certainly not as a monarch, to just deprive me of that without some kind of rule of law or, or justice being a part of it. So I have the right to my life, I have the right to my liberty, and then ultimately for Locke, I have the right to property. Now Locke wrote in an agrarian culture, which simply meant I have the right to, to own and to, to have that as, as fundamental, my property, which means I can, I can have a living, I'm secure and I'm safe, and I can provide for all the needs that, that have to be met for myself and my family. That basically I can flourish. So life, liberty, and the place to plant myself so that I can develop and flourish as a human. Does that make sense? 
So what, what Jefferson is doing and the other American kind of thinkers is they're saying we are holding this to be true like Locke did that we can say to a monarch that he does not have the ability to deprive us of inalienable or kind of fundamental rights which is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness taken in a classical sense. The, the right to develop and to pursue my human flourishing to provide for my needs and to grow and to mature into the good life. And so Jefferson is basically articulating the same political theory here, just using happiness as a better placeholder kind of rhetorically than property, okay, which is not about me, it's more about the land or the, or the spot. And we go back biblically and we say, what does this look like? And we see the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt and God is saying, listen, I'm taking you out of Egypt. I'm redeeming or ransoming your life, the whole blood of the Passover. And I'm gonna set you free from where you were. You're gonna be a people called under my name where you're gonna be free. And I'm gonna take you where? To property, to the land, flowing with milk and honey where if you are now planted there and you obey me, you will be able to flourish and know all the goodness that I would have for my children. Do you see how this is working itself out? Okay? So happiness, as, as properly defined, again, is more synonymous with joy, and it's about a state of being that we grow up into with human flourishing and the good life. It's not until recently um, degenerated down into simply a placeholder for doing whatever feels good for me. And in, in court cases, even um, things that argue before Congress, the, the right to the pursuit of happiness has been used for so many things, even um, morally or ethically de degenerative things, because it's you can't tell me I can't do what I want to do. Because I have the right to the pursuit of happiness meaning pleasure, meaning I just get to do whatever feels good. And you, you shouldn't be able to tell me no. And that's not at all what the framers of, of America or the fathers in, of America would have thought for that. Okay, Classically, it's not what people would have thought. So I just want to kind of put that out there first and say what we're dealing with here when I'm talking about a theology of happiness and contentment is a state of being of human flourishing that um, the classic thinkers and even the, the Christian thinkers of Aquinas and Pascal and Kierkegaard uh, have always seen as a proper human end. That when we grow up into the way God created us and we're in that relationship with God, when everything is functioning the way it ought to be, the right and proper end of that is, is joy, is happiness. Okay, so let's start with the first point here. Uh, toward a, a theology of happiness and contentment, the first point is just this, that happiness is biblical. Happiness, properly understood, is biblical. Ecclesiastes 2.26, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. Most of your Bible translations will have Matthew 25.23, that when the the servant was obedient to the master and did the right things for the master that the master comes back and says this he replies to the servant well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful with a few things by the way this is Matthew 25 23 you have been faithful with a few things 
I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now, most English translations in context will put the word happiness there. It's uh, in Greek, a version of the word kara, which is joy. Once again, showing that the translators of our Bible understand the synonymous relationship between the English word happiness and the idea here of joy. Okay. Uh, Psalm 16:11. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand, says the psalmist. You fill me with joy in your presence, that when we grow up and we flourish and we're living the life that we were designed to live and we're in that relationship rightly with God, that you cannot separate happiness or joy or contentment from that state of being when everything is working the way it ought to be at a spiritual level. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. A couple things we get from that verse. First off, whenever religion becomes about earthly things, it's dangerous. Whenever religion becomes about earthly things, behaviors, it's dangerous. Religion ultimately is about spiritual realities, um, righteousness, peace, and joy. Religion is ultimately about spiritual things, in the Holy Spirit that are irreducibly relational, okay? Religion, rightly understood, and when we get it right, is about spiritual qualities, um, soulish qualities in men and women that is irreducibly tied to relationship. Ultimately, relationship with God and driven by the Holy Spirit, but I would argue that God never envisioned that to be devoid of relationship with uh, others as well. We're all born into a family, Somehow, um, we, we are community people. And so there's just this kind of idea that if we're gonna go get with God and just be spiritual, just us and God, or be mystical that way, that we're hitting on a deep aspect of Christian spirituality, but we're missing something that is supposed to be a part of what's going on. That's that we're communal beings and that everything is relational. Love God and love others, being in community, not uh, stopping meeting together. What's the worst form of punishment known to mankind? Yeah, solitary confinement. So the kingdom of God, Romans 14, 17, is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of behaviors, but of righteousness, peace, and joy. These spiritual attributes in the Holy Spirit, in the relationship, in the context that we have that way. So here's two interesting things. Uh, Hebrews 1, 8 through 10, borrowing from Psalm 45, 7, where it prophesies about the Messiah, it says this, Hebrews 1, 8 through 10. But the Son, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy that the Messiah was set above, exalted above his companions in some sense, in one regard, by being anointed with the oil of joy or gladness as it would be in some other translations. It actually goes on later in Hebrews to say that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. In other words, when he was wrestling in the garden before he gave his life, 
it wasn't a resignation to obedience alone that caused him to move forward into the calling that he had. But the desire for and the joy that he knew would be his when he had faithfully lived out and been obedient to his calling, like all of us. We don't do um, our house chores just because um, we're going to resign ourselves to doing our house chores. We kind of have this sense of, I want to get that done so that I can enjoy having completed that. Um, and, I, and I'm looking forward to and anticipating being on the back end of this. And Jesus, knowing that that action was going to bring so much good to people he loved, how much more did that joy motivate him? And so Hebrews just unabashedly says, Jesus was motivated by a self-interest of having the joy of completing his calling. There's a huge difference between selfishness and self-interest. And we never make this distinction. God in Isaiah goes on and on about, I will not give my glory to another. I will own my own glory and I will make sure that you give me the glory that is mine and I won't let you, uh, you give to anyone else the glory that should go to me. It's mine. It's mine. And so a lot of people struggle with that. And they're like, man, that's just a really kind of selfish posture of God. He's just really demanding about himself. And what we have to understand is there's a difference between self-interest and selfishness. Self-interest is doing something with regard to yourself. Selfishness is doing something with regard to yourself at the expense or without any concern for others. Right? And so when God says, my glory has to be mine, just like the sun has to exist in the center of your solar system, if it, if it stopped to exist as the center of gravity of your solar system. Everything would fall apart. And if I allow my glory to go to someone else, and if I don't challenge you when you're getting it all wrong, if I don't protect that, my self-interest is, is absorbed in it, correct. But if I don't guard this, everything falls apart. When you get on an airplane, the, the little video will say to you, if you're traveling with little children, put your mask on first. Why? Because you're selfish? Because, I mean, it's because if, as the, as the guardian of someone who's dependent and cannot fend for themselves, as the guardian of that dependent, the best thing you can do for the dependent is make sure that you're not going to lose consciousness or become incapacitated. And so they tell you, put your mask on first, and then you do the other one. There's a self-interest to that, but it's not selfish. And so when we get to this idea of Jesus for the joy set before him was motivated by joy, he endured the cross. There is self-interest in Jesus' death for the forgiveness of our sins. There is self-interest in it, but it wasn't selfish. Do you understand that distinction? So when we come as Christians, we're going to say, let's talk about happiness and joy and contentment. These are things that we can talk about unabashedly because when we do them correctly and rightly, they are godly qualities, qualities that we cannot separate from things functioning the way they're supposed to be. They're not selfish. Pleasure is selfish, is used often in a selfish way. Happiness is neutral with regard to it. Joy is neutral with regard to it. And we have to be able to separate that out. But the first point here 
is that happiness is biblical. The second thing here is that happiness and contentment are attitudes. Turn to Philippians, if you would. The book of Philippians, uh, a letter of Paul in the New Testament here. Um, Paul's books go by order of size, if you've ever wondered, starting with Romans and then 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. They go in order of size, length. And the letter to the Philippian church is one of the churches that Paul really liked. They seem to get a lot of things right. And Paul is thanking them in chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, for gifts that they've, they've given to him and through him. And he says this, Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had not, uh, no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. There's a lot going on right here. That verse is a very familiar one. I can do anything who, uh, through him who gives me strength is speaking to what kind of potentiality? A physical feat? changing circumstances. I, 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 this verse gets used wrongly so much. I used to use it wrong. I've told stories about like whenever I'd, I'd be under it, I would put on loud music and I'd just kind of get myself, my, myself all amped up that I can do anything through Christ who gives me strength. That's not what this is talking about. Paul is talking about an attitude, a mindset of contentment, happiness and contentment that is a spiritual mindset that is not dependent, it's not dictated, it's not necessarily dictated by circumstances. It can exist whether he has a lot or whether he has a little, whether he needs things or whether he's, he's kind of full up. And this can exist independent of that. And how does it exist? Ultimately, ex it exists because he has learned over time to let this be constant. He's learned the secret of this happiness and contentment and joy. And that ultimately it is fueled or grounded in Christ. Christ is at the center of biblical happiness and joy and contentment. And Paul is saying, I have learned how to be fixed in my contentment, whatever the circumstance, because ultimately I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can have an attitude and I can make choices that reflect my position with regard to God and ultimately my hope um, based on all the promises of God. I can have an attitude, a positive attitude, and I can make choices based on that alone without regard to circumstance. And there's something so powerful here about our prayer life. Often when we pray to God, it's all about changing our circumstances. God, I'm desperate. Change my circumstances so that I won't be desperate anymore. And I think, I think the more we begin to understand the Christian life, we begin to understand that principle that, that maybe we should be asking that God can help us change to fit the circumstances and not that the circumstances would necessarily be changed to fit us. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard was mentioned earlier. Did you say dangerous philosopher? Pretty dangerous. Dangerous is a good thing, though, sometimes, right? Um, <laughs> uh, 
Kierkegaard, it's, this is an old proverb and it's a lot, uh, kind of wide, widely attributed to Kierkegaard as well, but it says this, prayer does not necessarily change God, but it changes him who prays. Prayer doesn't always necessarily change God, but it changes him and her who prays. And I think what Paul's talking about here is, listen, people, you gave me a gift. That's a great gift, but I'm not loving you just because you gave me what I wanted. And now I've got that little hit of like, oh, life's good again, so I can be happy for a little bit of time. He's like, no, let me tell you something deeper here. I've learned the secret of being content, whether I've got a lot or not, um, because in Christ, I can do all things with guarding my heart and my mind, with guarding my attitude, and recognizing that in every situation, I have the choice of how I'm gonna respond to it. One of the biggest things that changed my life was a Chuck Swindoll paragraph on attitude, and it gets to this point, and he says, um, I'm convinced that, that, that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. We're controlled by our attitudes, not our circumstances. You know? And so Paul's teaching these people that, and what he shows us is that contentment, happiness and contentment, are attitudes. I want to read two verses to you real quick. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. We get it again, um, the same attributes again. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money. So it's not about stuff, but be content with what you have regardless of the stuff or the money because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You're grounded in a relationship with God that's going to drive or ultimately fuel your ability to be happy or content or have the fullness of joy that is the appropriate end of this relationship we have with God. First Timothy chapter 6 says the same thing. Let me just read it quickly. He's talking about money. He says, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching... He's conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial end. Once again, when religion is, uh, is at its worst, it is aimed on something earthly rather than being aimed at God and the spiritual qualities that that should be a part of all Christians. Um, so they've been robbed of the truth and they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Rather, verse 6, First Timoth uh, Timothy 6, 6, rather, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. So when you have this relationship with God and you have doctrine and you have, you have theology and you have these truths and, and we're focusing there, um, we can begin to go, what is this all about? And then as we're having this conversation with all these spiritual things, we can begin to aim it at stuff. You know what I'm talking about? I've got this relationship with God. It's, it's dynamic. It's wonderful. I'm a great Christian. You know what? I bet I could use that to get the girl I want. Or I bet I could use that to be really popular in this Christian community. Or I bet I could use that to put you down and make myself feel better. Or I bet I can use my fine words to slice and dice you so that other people would look at you and go, wow, that person doesn't know anything. This person, however, is really wise. 
really godly. I can, I can use my godliness in a whole lot of ways to benefit myself in an earthly standpoint. And that's always going to lead to envy and kind of friction and tension because it's a misappropriation of godliness. Using religion in, in the worst way, right? We all know that religion has a negative connotation in a whole lot of aspects. So godliness used for human ends, earthly ends, is bad. And, and so Timothy is saying, let me tell you what is good though. Godliness plus contentment and boom, there you go. You got that and you've got it all. You have your relationship with God and you have your godliness and you're able to enjoy the fullness of life that comes with that. You're able to sit in the pocket and just go, you know what? That is gonna fuel my joy and my happiness and my contentment and I don't have to try and manipulate it for any other end. I can sit there and trust this. That is an investment. That is great gain. That is profitable. That's where it's at. Godliness with happiness, with joy, with contentment is the appropriate end of being in this right relationship with God. It's a beautiful thing. I remember, so, um, so happiness and contentment are attitudes. I remember, um, anyone know the Huntington Library down in Pasadena? I, was, I used to go there for like solitude. Um, and I remember one of the first times I went there, they had these, uh, they have these rose gardens and they have this kind of uh, walkway where the vines grow over the top. You know what I'm talking about? And I don't know what it is, but when it's sunny out and you're in a peaceful place and you're walking through like a, a row of trees that have grown to where it's like an arch and the, the, the sunlight's filtering through or this, this little walkway where it had kind of all the vines and the sun was filtering through. I don't know what it is about that, but I really like that. Like I, I really like that. And so I, it's like the one part of the old south that I have these like visions of, you know, the walkway, the long walkways and the, the trees. And, and I'm walking down this place and the Huntington Library used to be like the Huntington Railroad, Huntington Beach. It was the Huntingtons and they were really rich. And this was their whole estate. And they brought in all these different kinds of gardens and they had these libraries and these museums and all for like one family. And then it became kind of a public facility. And so I had this kind of knowledge in the back of my mind that this used to be somebody's, right? So I'm walking past this rose garden kind of into this walkway area. And I remember having the thought, this is cool, but I really want this to be mine. Like to be able to stroll out at 7 p.m., 8 p.m. with, I don't know, raspberry lemonade and it's all mine. That's when I could really enjoy this. And so I, I really began thinking about that. And I'm like, um, so how do I enjoy it if it's not mine? I, I'm sharing it with all these people and, um, you know, these awkward people and, and tourists. And I'm like, how am I really going to enjoy this, you know, unless it's mine? <laughs> if it was mine, then I can enjoy it. Some of you guys know this. It's like you borrow a friend's whatever it is. And you can't really enjoy the sport, even though it's the first time you've ever done it. And you literally go out the next day and drop $1,000 because you're like, I'm only really going to enjoy this sport if, if, if the bike is mine or the skis are mine or the music equipment is mine. You know, if I own it, then I can enjoy it, right? Whether I'm good at it or not anyways, or whether I've learned to enjoy it first and then grow into owning my own stuff. It's like that mine thing is huge. So I remember this like, like it was yesterday here at Huntington Library. And I, I literally was like, how do I make this mine? 
And I quickly discerned that I couldn't make those mine. I'm, I'm not smart, right? Um, but maybe I could make something like this mine. And my mind just started going, right? And it was like uh, God began to do some work on my heart. He's like, really? What is, what is this? Did Jesus own any gardens? Like, did he have a walkway with trees? Like, did he have to own it to enjoy it? Does the psalm, do you have to own a star? Like, I, I think you can, uh, can't you buy the name of a star? Right? Like some obscure star that you can't even see with your own eyes, you know, but you could buy a piece of the heavens, you know? Like, put your name on it, um, I think. I read that somewhere. Um, do we have to, like, own the stars to be able to go to Psalm 19 and say, wow, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord? Like, do I have to own some of the sunset? Do I have to trademark cayenne? Like, is that, that's a color, right? Cyan, cayenne? Yellow, blue. Which is, which is cayenne? It's cyan and it's blue. And it's the name of one of your kids, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Um, it's cyan and it's blue. Um, but I don't have to own it to enjoy the sunset, right? So why do I got to own the mountain bike? Why do I got to own the garden that's beautiful as it kind of filters the, the late day sun and, and, and the heat, right? What is it about me that has to have things to feel like I can then be happy? And so later after that was actually when I was reading in C.S. Lewis, and one of Lewis's best quotes is this. He says, our best havings are wantings. Our best havings are wantings. You know, the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell in writing about happiness actually says you can't have the best forms of happiness without actually having want. I mean, we know this, right? If you give a kid everything they want, does it increase their level of happiness? So, I mean, it's a fascinating thing how want um, and need actually go with appreciation and being able to rejoice in what we have, or they actually even lead us more into relationship. And from a Christian spirituality sense, it begins to tell us, listen, at the end of the day, God, what I really desire most and what satisfies me most is you. And if I'm found in relationship with you, that's really my chief desire. And frankly, when I, the, the more I have stuff, it actually tends to get in the way of that relationship. So much so that Jesus says, man, it's really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they don't ever go looking for God. They don't ever realize their lack. They, they stuff their appetites with so many other things that, that they're numb to what they were made for. And what they were made for was this relationship with God, to be reunited with our creator, to be walking in fellowship and to, jo uh, to know the joy of the presence of the Lord, right? That this is where it's at. And sometimes when we don't have things, it forces us back. Like Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong because I lean on the Lord and then I learn that I can be content here. But when I have riches, Jesus says, I, I don't, I don't. And so what's funny is if you break down the typical, if you took all, like uh, Bruce Almighty, if you took all prayers in America and funneled them into a big computer and then you percentaged them out and said, what percentage of these prayers are circumstance-based, right? The great irony is that what we usually ask God for is the set of circumstances to come true that would make us less dependent on him. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? When we're praying for riches or circumstances, which is kind of a part of riches, which is make all my circumstances line up, which is what happens when we're rich, right? I mean, the byproduct of riches isn't the money itself, but what money can do in aligning everything to the way you want it. So that they're really two sides of the same coin. But when we're, all we're praying is give us the, the benefit of the money or the resources or the ability or the circumstances lining up, when we're just hung up on that and all we're praying about is this, sometimes I really wonder if God looks at that and says, what will happen if I give you that? Like, if I answer that prayer, what will be the outcome? Will it lead to a, a deeper relationship with me? Will it really lead to your contentment or your joy or, or will there be a new prayer tomorrow for the next circumstance? And if I stop answering these prayers, are you gonna start looking somewhere else? I mean, is there gonna be another source that you're gonna turn to? Because at the end of the day, is it really all about your circumstances? Or do you want me? Are you looking for me? Do you need me? And so I just love this idea that comes to my mind a lot that I read from Lewis, which is, our best havings are wantings. The things that, that awaken us to our desires. You know, Lewis actually uses as an argument for the existence of God, this argument. He's, it's called the argument from desire. He says, if we wake up one day and find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, it's logical to assume that we were made for, created for, designed for another world. That desires are created to have their, the thing that resolves them be a part of them, right? They're, they're two halves of a coin. So as design beings, created beings that have certain appetites, an appetite for food, which I can go satisfy, other appetites, appetite for fellowship, which I can go. But if we find in ourselves a desire that only God can satisfy, then it's, it's logical to assume that we were created for another world, that we were created for relationship with God. Lewis says, our best havings are wantings. I wrote it this way. I would rather be able to appreciate the things I cannot have than to have the things I'm not able to appreciate. And appreciation and happiness are attitudes. Uh, in my 20s, when I became a Christian, I realized the whole grass is greener on the other side, that the grass is greener where you water it. It's, it's, it's our choice, you see. Like, we can invest into things. We can have attitudes that... that help nurture and make things grow and flourish and the grass is greener where we water it the second thing here so the first thing is happiness is biblical second thing happiness and contentment are attitudes the third thing here godly happiness leads to generosity so just staying in in first timothy chapter six beginning to read in verse 17 Godly happiness leads to generosity. Verse 17 says this, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. So put our hope in Him. And then command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness 
and the generosity or the justice that flows naturally from that. Um, there's a whole lot of other verses all throughout Scripture that talk about how all these things are interrelated. Um, I wrote a chapter in my book on this, how our happiness and our relationship with God and the good of others are all intricately connected and not to be separated out as if they're distinct theological categories. I mean, systematic theology is a great discipline. It goes awry when we begin to take things and, and silo them or put them in a vacuum and we rob the relationality or the organicness of how they always are supposed to be held in an amalgam intention. I love what Sam's talking about because these things exist um, they exist in tension. You have to understand how the gospel drives one thing, but then it, it kind of rebounds and it spins on itself and it only deepens. And so when we understand true godly happiness and contentment, we understand that godly happiness leads to generosity. I once wrote um, this way with regard to envy because envy in some sense is the opposite of all these things. I wrote this. I said, fighting envy is easy. Don't compare yourself with those who have more. Rather, give yourself to those who have less. Fighting envy is easy. Don't compare yourself with those who have more. Rather, give yourself to those who have less. I don't know if you guys saw the documentary. I watched it a week ago because I love the soundtrack. But it's the movie Into the Wild. Eddie Vedder wrote a soundtrack for it. Um, and uh, Sean Penn directed it. But it's about a kid who graduates high school and just kind of rejects, graduates college from memory, and just rejects the whole world in some sense and goes and lives on the road and has this dream of going to Hawaii, uh, Hawaii. <laughs> a lot of uh, Alaska, has this dream of going to Alaska, the other state that's not a state, um, the dreams of going to Alaska and into the wild because it's like the supreme idea of being completely one with nature, Henry David Thoreau, and relying, self-reliance, Emerson, on himself. And so this is going to be the crowning jewel in some sense of his spirituality as he's rejecting American culture wholesale, capitalism, money, and all of it, right? So he slowly works, saves his money, gets to Alaska, goes all the way into the wild, uh, lives in this kind of abandoned bus that he finds. And to ruin the movie for you, he ends up dying um, a horrible way. Poisons himself by eating the wrong berries. It gets trapped because the spring uh, thaw makes the river so swollen that he can't really get out. And, and nobody knows he's there. And, and he basically wastes away and dies. And in the movie, which is interesting because it's been celebrating all along this guy's philosophy of life and, and how, how great it, I mean, it's really that typical kind of Hollywood way of romanticizing it and all these kind of self, self, self. And the whole time, I'm an extrovert. The whole time, I kept, I was cringing the whole movie. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, that doesn't look like fun to me. Like that, just, I don't know, you know. But I'm cringing the whole movie because it's celebrating his whole philosophy of life. And then right before he dies, I forget which, which book it was or whether it was Tolstoy, I think it was Tolstoy or something like that. He, ha he has it open and in between two lines, he writes, happiness, true happiness is shared. 
He, I mean, uh, a couple days earlier, or as he's been wasting away, he's writing in his journal about how utterly lonely he is. And then the last thing he writes is he writes this line, true happiness is shared happiness. And then, it, and then he goes, lays on the bed, gets himself kind of shaved up, washed up, and then, and then dies. We, more than anyone else, should understand that true happiness is shared happiness. If you, I mean, an evolutionary framework, a, a, a world without God, um, you can't ground that other than maybe just I found it to be true. But Christians, it's written into the theology, to the very understanding, our worldview, the cosmos, that it's irreducibly relational. We are relational beings. And at the bottom of that article you got um, are the great words from St. Augustine. You, uh, you, have cre- uh, we were, uh, you created us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. It's book one of the Confessions. So it's Augustine giving his testimony and doing it in prayer format. And he literally creates the whole genre of psychological biography. Nothing had ever existed in antiquity until he wrote confession, his confessions. That existed about a biography where you're talking about your thoughts and in your heart and what's going on that way in your mind. But he, he says this prayer, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless, meaning we're not complete. We're not flourishing. We don't have the good life. We don't have happiness or joy or contentment. We're we're irresolved until we find rest in you. So it all comes together. And the best kind of happiness is shared happiness. And because of that, I really derive this whole idea that godly happiness leads to generosity. It involves, our happiness involves others. You are a part of the equation for my happiness, or should be. So godly happiness leads to generosity. And then last, lastly, joy is rooted in and flows from prayer. Joy is rooted in and flows from prayer. Turn to Psalm 131, if you would. So happiness is biblical. Happiness and contentment are attitudes. Choices, decisions. Godly happiness leads to generosity. And then lastly, joy is rooted in and flows from prayer. Psalm 131 is one of the, one of the smallest of all the psalms. And I remember being in, in grad school and having a professor take a group of us that were kind of in a mentoring relationship. And we literally spent two hours praying and dwelling on just this little itty-bitty psalm. Psalm 131. It says this, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. And it's this prayer of contentment. It's this prayer of not self-reliance, but reliance upon God. It's this prayer of centering yourself in Christ and understanding that, that our, our whole frame of reference is not us as an independent point, but where we are in, in being located with regard to God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, whatever. Um, and so we begin to understand that the question about ourselves is really not a question about ourselves in, uh, in isolation. That the true question about ourselves is really about a, a question 
of who we are in relation to God. And I think that's almost true. I could take any one of you and say, I could pretend to think you're an isolated being and let me just analyze you in isolation. But the reality is, um, your fullness of life is gonna come not by analyzing you in isolation, but analyzing you in where you are in terms of being in relation to God. And are you stilled there? Are you quieted there? Are you reaching out and holding on there? Are you calling for grace? Are you looking for spiritual sustenance or nurture or, or, uh, or power or whatever it might be to give rise to what it would be spiritually as you walk into this world? Happiness, joy, contentment, peace, faithfulness, goodness, all those kinds of things. Are you seeing yourself as distinct or as grounded and rooted in God? And so... Joy is rooted in and it flows from prayer. Another way of putting it would be John 16, 24. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Jesus says of his disciples. You've just been following me. You've been hanging out. You've been doing what I told you, but you've never really asked for things in my name in virtue of your relationship to me. Like you're not praying and saying, I'm a follower of Jesus and I gotta do what he asked me to do, so I need this, right? Until now, you haven't done that. And so he says, Uh, You haven't done that, but ask now and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Our joy is made complete partly in our prayers that we ask and the answers we receive. A couple weeks ago I said, pray prayers that God can answer. In other words, pray prayers that you know are answered when God answers them. Pray distinct prayers. Pray specific prayers. I'm not a health and wealth guy that says, if you name your prayer, God will then give it to you. I'm simply saying, be specific with your prayers so that if God does answer it, you'll know it. If you're so vague um, about your prayers and, and indescript, half the time God's moving and he's like, hey, did you see that? By the way, I, I gave you what you asked for. Okay, we're on to something else. Like I... I'm saying don't pray prayers that are specific because now God's duty bound to give it to you. I'm saying pray specific prayers so that you can see it when God gives you what you ask for and you can rejoice in that and your relationship with God is gonna grow through that. You see how that all works? Pray prayers that lead to better prayers. Pray prayers in faith that lead to more faith. Pray prayers that will allow you to have fullness of joy as you see those prayers being answered in your life. So write them down if you need to. Be specific if you need to. Tamara and I, we write them on our, if you're a perfectionist, you might not like this, but we have a, a, a black dry erase pen and we write them on our bathroom mirror like between our two halves. What we're praying for specifically, both of us, and it stays there and it reminds us until we can erase it. And then it's like, wow, God's erasing things. He's erasing needs. He's supplying what we lack, to do what he would want us to do. So pray specific prayers because in that, you're gonna find your happiness and your joy and your contentment and your relationship with God nurtured. Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. I gotta ask a very serious question of of all of us. 
Um, we treat spiritual matters like we, we treat oil changes, right? I mean, how many, how many, when was the last time you thought about an oil change? Anybody? It's absolutely necessary for your car. Absolutely necessary for the, for the integrity of your car and the long-term health kind of uh, functioning, proper functioning of your car. Yet nobody takes it serious. Nobody even thinks about it. Gas, on the other hand, when was the last time you thought about gas? Anyone think about gas this week? Anyone think about gas this week? Anyone think about gas this week? Okay. How important is gas to the proper functioning and long-term health of your engine? It's, it's absolutely inessential. A absolutely inessential for the health of your engine. It matters to whether your engine will go or not. See what I'm saying? But it's not the thing that, that your engine needs as it's running over time to stay healthy. It's urgent. It's immediate. We think about it um, all the time. It sustains the car in terms of being able to function as a car and take us where we need to go, the proper ends of a car. We think of spiritual things like we think of oil. We think they matter. If we were asked on a, on a test or a quiz if they matter, we would say yes. Does the Bible matter? Yet when was the last time you opened it? Do you need to read scripture to really begin to understand God and develop a relationship with God? Yet when was the last time you had a consistent quiet time? Does it matter that we pray and really pray to our relationship with God? Would anyone say no? But when was the last time you buried your, your face in the corner of the couch and you cried your eyes out and then when, when there were, were no more tears left to cry, you stayed with your face buried in the corner of the couch and stayed praying, desperate to hear God speak. So we would all say prayer matters. But when was the last time you really prayed? We say, like, I got so in the habit of telling everyone at Antioch, like, I don't care, go to the mountain. Like, I, we don't take attendance. Like, I don't care. But when was the last time I told you, like, it actually matters? Like, church actually matters. There's something that happens here that over time really matters to you and to other people and to your kids. You don't just come here because it somehow benefits you. You belong to this community and you come because in some sense you owe it to the other people here. You owe it to your kids. You owe it to God and, and that we're valuing and that we're all showing and demonstrating that the bride of Christ actually matters, that his plan A for his people is actually what we're gonna consider God's plan A. Like, I get, so, I get so wrapped up sometimes with pleasing people that I'm like, oh yeah. Like, you haven't come for like half a year. Well, I get it. The weather's been nice. I, I totally get it. Wow, and you look really buff and tan and in shape. Man, I wish I was like, like, but that's not always what, what we need to say. And so when it comes to this, right, your happiness is not going to come from Phil's trail. It might be a piece of it, but ultimately it's not, okay? Your happiness is not going to come from caring vaguely about some value called prayer or uh, Bible reading study. Sounds boring already. 
It's not going to come from your value of Christian community, but we, we kind of get all these things, but it's like oil change, and I don't know, I'll get to it someday, but I've got life to live over here, fullness of life to pursue, my own happiness that I got to go invest into, because that's urgent. Like, that's not the way these things work. And your joy is rooted in, ultimately, if we understand it correctly, is rooted in, and it flows from prayer. God, satisfy us in the morning. That's in the Psalms. That's a prayer. It envisions us on our knees in the morning before we start our day saying, God, you've got to ground me somehow. You've got to satisfy me. You've got to make me feel that, that your love is real so that all my worries and insecurities are somehow assuaged or at least put on hold enough that I can go out the front door full, full with something to give of your love because we love as he first loved us. And if I don't feel this, guess what I'm going to be like to other people? I'm going to devour them. I'm going to devour my kids or my wife or whatever it is. So it's like, God, you got to somehow ground me here with your love. And then when I go out, it's like the world is trying to offer me cheap pleasures. Do this and you'll be happy. Do this and you'll have a cheap fix. Do this and you'll really have the good life. And when I come out, you got to satisfy me with your love so that my joy is full and I look at that stuff for what it is. It's counterfeit. It's not going to last. It's not going to really make me happy. What you did for me this morning, the spiritual thing that happened, the transaction that happened, the relationship that happened when I was praying to you, that's what grounded me. That's what I need. I don't need cotton candy. I don't need this other stuff. This psalm envisions us being desperate to go to God to supply us with what we need to drive our car that day. Prayer is to happiness what gas is to the car, not oil change. Somehow we've got to capture a mature view of spiritual things because we've degenerated down to a very thin uncritical and shallow view of spiritual things. We say they really matter, but then when we look for them in our calendar or in our checkbook or in our thought processes, it's like these things we think really matter, they don't, they don't show up anywhere. And we have to realize our happiness is gonna come through prayer. It's gonna come through our relationship with God. And if you really understand the unity of Scripture and you're digesting how all of this holds together, then somehow we have to translate value into commitment. We have to translate value into commitment. It has to show up in our calendar, in our disciplines, in the choices we make, in the way we spend our money. It has to, we have to be able to trace it. If you came to me right now and said, man, I just really don't feel close to God, and this joy, happiness, God, whatever thing you're talking about, yeah, I, I don't get it. Like if you came to me somehow with that and I said, show me your decisions, show me your structure, show me your habits, show me your calendar, show me your money, and let's begin to trace out where godly happiness is going to be nurtured here, what would it look like? What would it look like? And would you be able to make the connection between the cause and effect? 
That's one thing I love about golf is you get out on the golf course and there's things that old golfers always say to you that annoy you, you know, and they haven't been updated in, I don't know, generations, you know, it's like get some new lingo. Um, but one of the things is kind of like you, you hit a ball out in, in the, into the I'm never going to find the ball place and then someone will come up to you and they'll, they'll like hold their club against your legs and they'll be like, look at where you were aiming. You know what I'm talking about? Like they hold a club like against your legs and it's like <laughs> the ball went exactly where you were pointing and you're like, well, you, could, you know, maybe wait till everyone's not watching or tell me before I hit the ball or something like that. But the principle here is that your system is designed to give you exactly the results you're getting. Your system is designed to give you exactly the results you're getting. And I would argue to you this morning, your relationship with God the fullness of joy that comes from it is exactly the product of the choices and decisions and how you're handling your time and priorities in your life. In other words, how you are running your life has a direct effect on your degree of intimacy with God and the ability to experience happiness, joy, and contentment through that relationship. Your system is designed to give you exactly the results you're getting. If you're coming to me and you're saying, I'm not happy, I don't know God, and I hold a golf club to your legs, is it exactly where you're aiming? So that's the last principle here is that joy is rooted in happiness. Contentment is rooted in and flows from prayer. If you think you're going to find fullness of joy somewhere else, you're looking in the wrong place. So my prayer for us this morning is just simply... God would be able to fill us with all the joy that he wants us to have. He gives us all things for our enjoyment. Let's pray. Father, please don't ever let us make the mistake of making you the enemy of the happiness you created us to enjoy. Please don't ever let us make the mistake of thinking that contentment or peace, these wonderful virtues are somehow morally whatever, that they don't have a place within our biblical framework or our, our Christian understanding. Please let us understand that you're a father who loves us. God, that you love us. You want to satisfy us with your love. You want to help us understand and experience that love. And it brings you joy to see us have joy in the relationship we have with you that it's very natural and simple. God, just please tattoo that into our, our, our minds and, and let us not forget that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.